So we're in a message series called Signs of a Savior, and uh, this week I did a little research, and I found what might be the best signs from around the world. Y'all can be the judge. This one's interesting. I think those who rode their bikes to work that day would be most grateful. Here's one. Whoops. Here's one. Please be safe. Don't sit, stand, climb, lean on the fences. If you fall, animals could eat you, and that might make them sick. <laughs> Got to have your priorities straight, I guess. Here's one. Feed a pigeon, lose a finger. Real clear, right? <laughs> Dangerous pigeon feeding is. I, I don't know what this one is. <laughs> I think maybe look both ways. Um, this one's from San Antonio. <laughs> this one's lost in translation. <laughs> I hope there's not a fire. People, people might not know what to do. <laughs> I like this from Scotland. <laughs> Not exactly good self-advertisement, huh? Here's one. Nice playground. Yeah. Appreciate the warning. We wish you would have built this playground somewhere else. <laughs> this one's interesting from a supermarket. It seems, a, it seems a little prejudiced to me, <laughs> but that's just my perspective. <laughs> this one's from a wedding. <laughs> uh, definitely Anglican. Um, in this section of the birth narrative that we delve into this morning, uh, Luke is emphasizing some signs. Uh, the fulfillment of two messianic signs or, or messianic prophecies. And remember, Luke's committed to the facts and reporting them accurately. And he really is a, a fantastic historian and communicator of what's happening at this season of history, which is in fact the hinge of history itself. And first, Luke emphasizes that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, fulfilling God's promise uh, through the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2. And then he's going to emphasize that uh, Jesus is related to King David, fulfilling God's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, and these are two significant signs of the promised Savior that Luke is going to hold up and invite us to cast our gaze and set our hearts upon in uh, this part of the birth narrative because they speak so powerfully, not only to the person of Christ, but to the peace that we have with God and with ourselves and with one another through his generous grace. 
So let's look at, uh, at this first sign, this first promise, this first messianic telling that Jesus uh, will be born in Bethlehem. God foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem through the prophet Micah. In Micah 5.3, the Lord says through his prophet this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. A beautiful foretelling of God's love, fulfilled in the person and ministry of Christ Jesus. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. He will be a Jewish man to represent Israel and all of humanity. But it's interesting, his origin will be from old ancient times, Yom Olam, which is the strongest Hebrew way to emphasize that he'll be eternal, meaning that he'll be God, to forgive sin, to reconcile the world to himself, and to restore peace between God and man. What a beautiful promise. If you will, turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And, uh, and let's start with, I don't know, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus. Now, here's the thing. To uh, a first century reader, the mention of Caesar Augustus would have conjured up all the power and authority and influence of the Roman Empire. This is what Luke is doing. Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in the world. The Roman Senate called him the son of God. The poet Virgil called him the son of the deified. And so what Luke is trying to help us see in this section of the birth narrative is that the shadow of Caesar Augustus looms large in the history of God's salvation and the coming of the Messiah, the promised one. And what you see in these first several verses is something that Luke is doing very intentionally, portraying a downward spiral of influence from the world to God. Caesar Augustus, verse 1, the secular embodiment of authority, power, and privilege. Quirinius, verse 2, a regional governor. Joseph, verse 4, a poor but free carpenter. Mary, verse 5, a young unmarried pregnant woman. Baby Jesus, verse 6. It would be hard to imagine a less powerful, less privileged person on the planet than this infant. Sleeping in a feeding trough for livestock in an insignificant small town and the remote backwaters of a Roman territory. You see what Luke is doing? Augustus, recognized by the world as God and king, lived in an opulent palace in Rome and ruled over an empire that covered most of the known earth. Baby King Jesus. 
couldn't have been born in a more lowly or humble surroundings. And yet, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to him. And his kingdom would soon and forever exceed all the glories and all the influence of Rome. So the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. One small problem. Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth, in Galilee. So how is God going to make sure that they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem? God uses everything at his disposal to accomplish his will and his purposes. And so he uses a census for the purpose of taxation to accomplish his salvation. I love that about God. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing he can't get in or work through. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 3. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. At Augustus Caesar's instruction, everybody was made to travel to their ancestral home in order to register. Now, I'm not sure we ever pause to appreciate the difficulty of this moment. This would be like the president making it mandatory for all of us to pack up our things and travel to the city where we were born, wherever that is, by the end of this year to wait in line at the local DMV to fill out paperwork so that we could pay the appropriate amount of taxes, none of which would stay in America or help Americans. You see that? Like, blah. The original Christmas was no vacation, y'all. And so, as a descendant of David, Joseph left Nazareth and traveled to Bethlehem, and he brought Mary, his fiancée, with him, and she was pregnant. And so, according to the scripture, just as God had promised, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. How do you need God to work in your life? What, what is your heart posture toward God's desire and ability to do whatever it takes for your good and his glory? Hippolytus, who was one of the most important early Christian theologians, he lived from 170 to 235 AD. He wrote this. I want to invite you to reflect on what he's saying. He says, The word spoke first of all through the prophets, but because the language of their message was hard to understand, the Father sent the word in person, commanding him to show himself openly, so that the world could see him and be saved. We know that by taking a body from the virgin, he refashioned our fallen nature. We know that his manhood was of the same clay as our own. If this were not the case, we could hardly be expected to imitate him. He offered his manhood as the first fruits of our race 
to keep us from losing heart when suffering comes our way and to make us look forward to receiving the same reward as he did since we know that we possess the same humanity. Jesus is born in Bethlehem as a sign to us that the Savior has come. That he is like us in every way and yet did not sin. And fully God, that he might actually save us. He has the desire and the ability to do so. And so Luke now shifts to emphasize the connection between Bethlehem and King David and the importance of Jesus' genealogy, the importance that he's not just born in Bethlehem, but that he is of the line of the king. Um, Have any of y'all... done one of those DNA tests. They're pretty popular now. Ancestry, 23andMe, I don't know what they're all called. But, but they're, it's kind of a thing that's happening. And I know a lot of people are taking part of it. These home DNA testing kits um, have become pretty simple and somewhat affordable way to map out your family tree. Uh, and with a simple swab of your cheek or uh, a sample of your saliva, a DNA testing kit can, can identify your ancestors and determine your family of origin. And, and this is becoming more and more popular because knowing where we come from helps us know who we are. And this is what Luke is doing. He, he's showing us a, a little swab of God. He's showing us that Jesus can trace his family tree back through King David. Look at verse 4. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem, David's ancient home. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David. Look at this. Jesus is a direct descendant from David. And he's fulfilling God's promise, God's sign, given in 2 Samuel 7, which says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Because Jesus is related to David, Jesus is an heir and contender for Israel's throne, which is an essential requirement for the Messiah in the eyes of the Jewish people. Um, check out this family tree. I think it's, uh, it's really interesting that if you take all of the genealogies in the New Testament between John and Luke and Matthew, 
Jesus' line goes all the way back before Adam. That's the Gospel of John. And then through Adam, Noah, Abraham, to King David, where the tree has this beautiful fork, and both the line of Mary and the line of Joseph are descendants. Try and figure out the statistics of making that happen. Um, Thursday, I was at the barbershop. You might have noticed my high and tight. <laughs> Feeling a little cooler. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I had to get out my uh, beanie cap the other night to sleep. That's another story. We don't turn on the heat in our house. But uh, yeah, I'm getting a little monk look up here. Um, I was at the barbershop and uh, the young woman that was cutting my hair and I got into this conversation about uh, Christmas and God and church and she was just very freely sharing her story with me and I was so grateful. Uh, and then she said something along the lines of this, the churches that I've visited before just tell all the good stories in the Bible. I like the stories about the bad people. And what, what she was saying is that she's longing to make a connection with God. And the way that she makes a connection with God is hearing about the real stuff, the tough stuff, the broken stuff, the bad stuff of the world that we've all inherited and hold on to and are trying to get rid of in our hearts. Well, here you go. When we peel back the genealogy of our Lord from both Mary's side and Joseph's side, we come to a startling realization. God the Father chose some of the worst examples in human history to be in the family tree of the Son of God. Consider the kinfolk. Tamar gained notoriety in Genesis 38 by resorting to deception, prostitution, and incest when she couldn't bear a child any other way. She disguised herself as a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law Judah into having sex with her, and from that illicit union were born two sons, Perez and Zerah, and Tamar and her son Perez joined Judah in the Messianic line. Despite prostitution and incest, God's grace fell on all three of them. Rahab, remember her? A prostitute who put her faith in the God of Israel and demonstrated it by protecting the two men Joshua sent to spy out the city of Jericho. And God saved her life, but not only that, brought her into the Messianic line. She became the wife of Solomon and the mother of Boaz, David's great-grandfather. What about Ruth? A Moabite, a.k.a. a pagan, who had no right to marry an Israelite. And yet by God's grace, the Lord brought her into the family of Israel and threw Boaz into the royal line. She was a total outsider. And yet she was chosen to be the grandmother of David. David. 
Although David's uh, most often remembered as a man after God's own heart, which he is, he was guilty of horrific sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then conspired to cover his sin with a treacherous murder of her husband. David was broken and messed up. Yet despite adultery and murder, God made David the head of a royal line from whom the Messiah would descend. Bathsheba enters the Messianic line through adultery with David and the son of their sinful union dies in infancy, but by God's grace, Bathsheba and David marry and have another son, Solomon, who continues the lineage. Y'all, can you imagine a more scandalous family tree? These are the ancestors of the spotless, holy son of God, and it's no accident. God chose each one of these people. And I hope that you can see how the genealogy of Jesus is immeasurably more than just a list of ancient, hard-to-pronounce names. Okay, hear this. Do you know what this is? Do you know what this means? This is a declaration of the end of shame. It's the end of shame, y'all. Shame is the deeply gut-wrenching anxiety that comes from feeling unwanted and unworthy and unaccepted. And though we try to to numb the pain of shame with shopping or food or alcohol or medication or pretending that we're okay, we get stuck in shame. It's like quicksand to our soul. And the enemy hounds us. You're not enough. Others hound us. There's something wrong with you. We hound ourselves. You're bad. You don't matter. You don't belong. In his book, The Soul of Shame, neurotheologian Kurt Thompson defines shame as a sense of personal insufficiency and inadequacy that affects what he calls interpersonal neurobiology, which is a really fancy way of saying that shame negatively affects our lives because it negatively affects our brain, which in turn negatively affects our relationships. Shame is not what God intends for us. God creates us for the opposite. God creates us for the joy and delight that comes from feeling emotionally naked, innocent and vulnerable, fully accepted and unafraid, unashamed in the presence of God and each other. Y'all, this is why Jesus comes. Through a long line of notorious sinful people. I want to just invite you, if you feel comfortable, to close your eyes for a moment and hear this. With the help of the Holy Spirit, hear this. 
Jesus was born into a long line of shame, into the most humble conditions, in the most lowly of places to live a perfect life on our behalf, being tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. And because of the joy set before him, he endured the naked vulnerability of the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, now calling us to listen to the Spirit who echoes the voice of our Father in heaven, telling us that in Christ we are his fully accepted, wanted sons and daughters whom he loves and in whom he is very well pleased. Open your eyes. That's the purpose of Jesus' genealogy. That we might understand God's passionate pursuit of us, that he never gives up on us. And that by faith in his generous grace, we might be restored to peace with him, peace with ourselves, and peace with one another. That's what his presence brings. In Christ, God holds all of our weakness, all of our brokenness, all of our fallen vulnerability with gentleness and love. In Christ, God is not ashamed of you. Jesus comes from a long line of broken people to show you that there is nothing so shameful in your life that God can't make beautiful. That means that I don't have to pretend that I have it all together. Jesus can fix all my broken pieces. Jesus can mend each and every one of my phrase. That's why Jesus came. I need him. My faults, my shortcomings, all of my weaknesses, they don't embarrass God. They are exactly what qualifies me for his forgiving grace and healing mercy. Jesus is not ashamed to have notorious sinners in his family tree, and he's not ashamed of you and me. He came to forgive our sin and to remove our shame. He came to clothe us with acceptance and worth. He came to make us holy and acceptable in God's sight, here and now and forever. That's the good news of great hope that we celebrate that Luke is holding up in the birth narrative. Y'all, that's a sign. It's a sign of the king of love, and that sign is worth far more than anything that you could buy or consume or seek out in this world. Jesus is our greatest treasure. And when we treasure him above all else, we are most satisfied and God 
is most glorified. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus is the king of grace. He's the king of love, and no one is beyond his grace. No one is beyond his embrace. Luke is telling the story of Jesus' birth as the climax of the long story of Israel, which in turn is the story how the one true God is is rescuing the world, including you and me. He's the center of God's plan for Israel. He's the fulfillment and resolution of the entire Bible. And he continually extends his invitation today to turn to him and to believe that we might have life here and now and forever. And so as the writer to the Hebrews beckons, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let's pray. Jesus, how great is your grace and love toward us that you would strip yourself of all you had to come alongside us, to live a life of humiliating poverty, ultimately to endure the cross to save us from sin and shame and restore us to peace with you, with ourselves, with one another. Lord Jesus, as we come to you around your table this morning, our hearts are open. All our desires are known and from you no secrets are hid. By your grace, cleanse us. By your grace, clothe us in your righteousness. By your love, do a mighty work in our hearts that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name in our hearts, in our homes, in our neighborhoods throughout this season. For your glory, And our joy, we pray Jesus in your name. Amen.